Listener Production. I think when you have been berated by a parent, when you've had to live through hearing what someone like that thinks of you and it's really not much, and when you have come out the other side of that, when you've, when you've learned to, to live with that, don't think there's much else that can get to you. I don't think anyone else's opinion can ever hurt me after that, to be honest. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Broadcaster, comedian and communicator Michelle Laurie is a force in media. She was one of the first Aussie broadcasters to embrace podcasting and now has an audience in the tens of millions. I'll also always remember her generosity to me when she was our very first guest on Studio 10. She was a true professional guiding a brand new, very nervous TV panel. Her latest podcast, Can We Be Real, already has a big fan base. And I wanted to talk to Michelle about how she is so fearless in her life and work. Michelle. Yes. It's so exciting. It is. Seeing you. I know. I'm excited to be here and see you. Because, I mean, you are the podcasting queen. I wouldn't go that far. But yes, was... you are. Really? Yeah. Oh, thank you. You've had the most extraordinary life, Michelle. I wouldn't go that far. Yes. Because I've heard you talk about this when you were growing up in Toowoomba. You know, in your own words, you kind of say, I mean, you weren't a rat bag, but you did <laughs> push the boundaries. Yeah. Didn't you? A bit, yeah. Yeah, a bit, yeah. I think to a normal degree, I think there's usually a kid in every family, isn't there, like me? Normally when I meet people, either they were it or when I hear them talking about their siblings, I think, oh, yeah, that was the me of their family. I think there's normally one. Well, there's probably one more than others. I heard you also say a story recently about your dad. And, I mean, because you're an incredible worker. You're a workaholic. And he came into your room and basically was like, get up, I don't care that you've been out all night. Yeah. You've got to show up. You're not allowed to have hangovers. Yeah, so I still don't get hangovers because I had to work at the fish and chip shop that day and I was rat-assed the night before and, yeah, he just, he didn't care about that. I was about 16. But he said, you don't call in sick. That is a disgrace. And he meant it. He wasn't joking. He was genuinely like the shame. I can still feel the shame of it now. When I remember that moment, he was standing in my doorway and he was just disgusted. Absolutely beside himself. He thought I was a disgrace that I would call in sick with a hangover. And do you think that's where then that almost workaholic side of you kind of kicked in from then, that you had to just keep going regardless. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he could never love, look at that, I can't say love or like, I wasn't sure which one to say, either a person who was lazy or didn't put work first. He was always slagging off people we knew as like, you know who he hated so much? It's so hilarious. Men who went out with their families. (laughs) 
What? It's so I love that though. Of I mean, course. in terms of like going out on an outing together. Everyone, everyone loves it except him. He would go, oh, God, look at that. Look at that bloke out riding bikes with his kids. And just absolutely, again, disgusted. You'd just be thinking, is, has he got no work to do, that bloke? Like, fancy. He just was revolted by that and he copped it if a woman was doing it, but I think he still sort of thought, well, surely you've got something better to do than playing with kids. And when a man was doing it, oh, my God, he just couldn't even, he couldn't bear it, couldn't bear it at all. So, yeah, can you imagine what it's like to grow up in that vote? But on the upside, he got to do whatever he wanted. He had no rules at all in our house. He blew in and blew out whenever he wanted, no questions asked. He spent whatever money he wanted, even though we had no money. Mum didn't get to do any of that. She just had to pick up the pieces around the place and she had to take care of us and all the boring stuff. So, of course, I wanted to grow up to be him. (laughs) Why would you want to grow up to be her? I was like, okay, fine. If that's the price you pay for freedom, I'll pay it. I will just work all the time. And have you changed now? Yeah, well, I've had to because my husband did not want to play the part of my (laughs) mum when we had kids. He was like, no, no, I don't want to stay home and take care of everything while you do whatever you want. So we broke up. Yeah, so now I have to be everything. So I have not got the fairy tale, I'm afraid. I have not been able to be my dad. So yeah, now I've had to learn to live differently. And I went through a period of resentment about that. It was was very difficult, but now I'm just kind of floating around the place. I think I have learnt to accept it. And also as the kids have gotten older, it's become a bit easier, I think, you know, and they've accepted me and not that they ever didn't, you know, what kids are like. But they love you. That's what I mean. They love you regardless. And I I think, aren't they, as mums especially, we often put far too much pressure on ourselves to be something when... They don't see any of that. They just want to know that they're loved and you're there. Yeah, they are. They're really sweet. I think we all have something that I'll say, I'm so sorry, I'm a crap at keeping the house tidy or whatever it is. And they'll go, no, mum, no, you're not. You're a great mum. Yeah, they're very kind. And they do. They just love us. I speak to adults who were very terribly mistreated by their parents in childhood. And the love they carry for their parents is breathtaking. And you realise, God... Kids just love their parents. And also that we're enough. I think that's also yes. what it's about. You know what? You've got this. Yes, they don't actually care if you've forgotten something or if, you know, they can they can cop it. They, there was a kid had a sleepover at our house the other day and for whatever reason I would just happen to be able to cook two meals for them in 24 hours. I cooked them dinner the night before and I, in the morning, cooked them eggs and bacon, which is outrageous at our house. Anyway, and I heard this little girl say, God, all we've got is bread. We've never got anything else. And I had to stick my head around the corner and go, babes, this is not normal. This is not. (laughs) Is it guys? This is a special bread. Yeah. I said, guys, like seriously, I said, there's lots of times we don't even have bread, you know? And they went, yeah, yeah. There's lots of times. And we're all laughing because I thought, I don't want you to go home and say to your mum, their mum, cooks all the time and she cooks them bacon and eggs for breakfast all the time because I don't, you know. And I know her mum and she's a great woman and she works hard and all that stuff. And, yeah, it's enough. Of course it is and you're enough. And But you always wanted to be a mum, didn't you? You went through IVF. Yeah, definitely. And I didn't think about it a lot when I was younger. 
I suppose you, I just thought, oh, it'll happen. It'll happen. And then I suddenly went, oh, God, it's not happening. It hasn't happened. And what's the time? Oh, my God. I better do something. And I'm, I'm used to making things happen, I think, in life. So I thought, oh, well, that's fine. I'll just make it happen. And what I found intriguing, though, reading about your experience with IVF is you were so determined to make it happen, you didn't sort of bring your ex-husband along for the ride, did you? Well, I wanted to, but he was resisting and I thought he'd get into it. (laughs) Like, there were other things in the relationship that he'd resisted initially and then he got into them. He didn't want a dog either, but when we got the dog, little Bobby, he fell in love with Bobby and then he loved Bobby and then it was fine. So I thought, oh God, he'll be fine. He's just you know, resistant to change, but then he's always fine. And I thought he'd just be fine, but he just wasn't. You know, parenting changes people, it changes your life, it changes your relationship, and it brought up some trauma for him that I didn't know about and he didn't know about. And it just, it never worked. He loves the kids very much, but it just couldn't, he couldn't do it, can't do it. Because there was a part that sort of broke my heart when, because I went through IVF as well with Allegra, my eldest daughter, where he didn't come along with you for the ultrasound. Yeah. To see those two heartbeats. Mm. I know, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And again, you know, there was a lot of resentment there about my pregnancy and about all of that. Yeah. I didn't get a nice pregnancy because he was like freaking out and yeah, I didn't get that moment with him. Yeah, it's really sad. And because I remember that moment. Do you remember the moment when you have that first ultrasound and it's like a flashing light? Isn't it? It's amazing. So that's what they look like when your embryo is two weeks old. It's so tiny and most women don't get to see them that early. And when it's an IVF pregnancy, you do. And that's what it looks like. It looks like a flashing light. I'll never forget it as long as I live. And then He said, oh, we put two in, didn't we? I said, yes. And then he turned to wander around and went, oh, there's the other one. And there was the other little flashing light. And obviously the best, most amazing moment. And then I went out, I'll never forget, into the car park and phoned him and told him. And I think he said, right. (laughs) I mean, so obviously he was just frightened. But yeah, it was pretty, it wasn't nice. I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Thank you. Yeah, it was bad. It's awful. Mm. But again, what I think about your life, how you've managed to, it's almost like you keep on keeping on. Yep. And where does that come from? I'll tell you where that comes from. It comes from my mum. Now, she had an extraordinary childhood, certainly. She, it's hard to even know where to start or what to say, but she was kind of, her mum had mental illness. What even was it? I don't know. Depression, she calls it nerves. Because she was two, three, four, five, and her father was violent. And so her mum and she would run away for periods of time back to her mum's parents' house. And during one of these periods of time, her dad died when she was five while they were away. And then her mum had, I guess, nervous breakdowns. Again, when my mum talks about it, she still like uses really childlike language. So I don't really know what was going on. But I do know that she then spent time with relatives. She was basically just moved around a lot while her mum was in psychiatric wards. And um, a lot of the time she spent was in convents. So she's five years old. 
and she's being raised by nuns and they were so mean. They were so cruel. They beat her and she wet the bed and they would drag her mattress out into the hallway and make her stand next to it so they'd tell all the other girls what she'd done and it was all that. And then when she finally got to move back in with her mum, her mum had married a guy and her mum took her own life when she was when my mum was nine. So this bitch is tough. <laughs> she is, she keeps moving on one foot in front of the other and has done since she was a toddler, you know. And so while my father's out just doing whatever he wants, whatever, whenever, see you later, see you around, she is, okay, I'll just keep putting one foot in front of the other, keeping everything on track. We never stop. We never give up. We never give in. We just keep going. So that's all I know how to do you know, which is great and it's a strength, but it's hard. I'm not as affectionate as I would like to be with my kids. She was, She's not very affectionate. She was never mothered. She didn't really know how to do that. So, yeah, at least I can say that to my kids. I'm sorry I'm not that affectionate or I'm sorry. We can talk about it, you know. What a woman, though. I know. Your mum. That yeah. is strong, yeah. resilient, and her ability, though, to keep going. What a role model for you. Yeah, absolutely. In so many parts of your life. Yeah. And loves having the piss taken out of her like no one you've ever met in your life. Like, I think that's why I'm a comedian because even as a kid, like, she just loves it. She just loves, you know, me teasing her. And now she... laughter is so important, yeah. I think, in the face of sadness and despair. Yes. If we can't laugh, if we can't, as you say, take the piss or, mm. you know, put, turn it back on ourselves, yeah. then who are we and where are There's we? There's a really interesting study that was done about um, Holocaust survivors, actually, and about the role that dark humour played in their survival. And they talked about it. Survivors talked about, yeah, me and my friends who survived, we joked, we had the darkest, blackest humour when we were in there. And other people who couldn't do that curled up and died. It's a real thing. Yeah, but I love that she wants you to laugh at her. It's so funny. Like now she's a bit wobbly on her feet and I always say she's got her rollerblades on when she's walking. <laughs> she doesn't, obviously. Okay, oh, Christ. <laughs> Nan's got her rollerblades on, guys. Grab a wing, you know. She's oh, laughs away. I love that about her. And even when I was a kid, when she'd be really angry with me, I could take the piss out of her and make her laugh and she, you know, couldn't be cross, couldn't stay cross. Yeah, she is pretty amazing. And that's what I say to my kids, even when she's being really annoying, I think of that five-year-old little Mary. Like, how can you stay angry at little Mary, poor little bugger, you know? But look at the life, though, that she has created, not only for herself, but for you, Mm. for her grandkids, and that is something to celebrate. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. She's in her 70s. Wow. Yeah, she's starting to look like her nan. When I was little, her nan used to be bopping around the place and she's really starting to look like her now, which is cute. Now, you say that that idea of being a comedian, making your mum laugh, that sort of began when you were young. Mm. You grew up in Toowoomba and you went to uni there. You found mm. your tribe. You're doing drama. It's like, yes. these are my people. Yeah. What was that like for you, that sort of moment? Oh, my God, I'll never forget it. I can see it so clearly. It was just, oh, just happiness, just pure, pure happiness, you know, just so great. I loved school. I loved high school. This was just different. I always felt like a bit different at high school, like, oh, I wish there was something that I loved doing here, you know. Like, I loved hanging out. I loved being there, but it was 
Then to go to uni that first day was like, oh, my God. And a lot of those kids knew each other. They'd been on the Stedford circuit and they'd been doing all these drama camps and things before and I hadn't. So, yeah, it was really like walking into this community. And they were so friendly and so gorgeous. And I met my best friend there, Cassandra, on the first day and she was is beautiful. And, and it was exciting and it was a great challenge and I knew I'd be good at it and I worked really hard and I was really good at it. And then after that, it was the same sort of feeling I had when I got into stand-up comedy. Very, very similar vibe. First day walking in and going, oh, I love you guys. And I love this. And I just know I'm going to be really good at it. And same in radio. You know, when you just walk into something and go, oh, well, this is great. I know I'm not good at this yet, but I can see what I need to do, what I need to practice. And I'm going to practice so hard and I'm just going to be quiet. I'm going to learn and I'm going to be really good at this. And I love that feeling, you know, when you find something new that you want to be really good at and you know that you're surrounded by people who are really good at it and people you can learn from. Like, that's just my favourite thing. Because Julia Morris was a mentor for you, wasn't she? She really took you under her wing. In stand-up, yeah, because I started stand-up in Brisbane at this club called the Sit Down Comedy Club, which is still there, and every week they would bring up someone from Melbourne or Sydney, a comic, and we would do, we comedians in Brisbane would do the the first earlier spots, and then they'd headline. So can you imagine? It's amazing. So every week we're seeing Judith Lucy, Mick Malloy, you know, Jamoan. Every week there's someone amazing and they're, they're chatting with us. They were so beautiful hanging out with us. They'd oftentimes watch our act before them and give us, you know, tips and encouragement. They were all so beautiful. But Julia and I just really hit it off and her manager at the time, Ingrid, and they both were just so great to me. And they said to me, oh, you've got to get out of here. You know, you should come down to Sydney. They were in Sydney at the time. And they just really encouraged me to do it. And I made the leap. And just as I was about to leave Brisbane to come down to Sydney, Julia got a job in Melbourne on Full Frontal. And so I said, okay, well, I'll come to Melbourne then. And so, yeah, she was the only person I knew. And I stayed with her for the first month I was in town. Yeah, and that's how it started. And that sort of life, I suppose, in Melbourne, and then before you moved to Melbourne, you've spoken in the past about drugs. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about that time and what that looked like for you? Well, I think now because I've done so much work in the crime sort of area, you know, I'm very attuned to the idea of drugs being the method through which people try to treat themselves, try to cope. Self-medicate. Absolutely. Try to cope with something. The, the drug isn't the problem. The drug is what I'm doing to try and cope with a problem, you know? So, yeah, I think there was some trauma there and... uh I was using drugs and I still I still definitely have that side of me that will sometimes just want to take an easy way and just, yeah, just want to knock myself out one way or another, you know, just get tired and I'm just like, oh God, I just can't be bothered. I just want to obliterate myself for a while, which I think is common. Yeah, but initially I was using amphetamines, there wasn't meth in those days, it was speed because it gave me confidence and I wasn't a drinker. So that sort of got me into a bit of trouble because it's really hard on the old nervous system if you use enough speed. And that, yeah, that, that really, really ended up being difficult for me. And then, and then I ended up using heroin for a while after that because I, to counteract the results of the speed. So I got into a bit of a cycle of that for a couple of years. But 
ultimately, it's just about fear of being alone with yourself, I think, of just being yourself. So sort of taking one kind of drug to feel confident and feel like a more interesting person and then taking another kind of drug to cope with the, the jitters from that first drug, you know, and to, yeah, knock myself out. Uh, it's been a long time now, though. And when was it that you realised, I can't keep going like this, this isn't the way I can sustain living in this way? Well, I think I was always just really ambitious. So ultimately I just, you know, knew that I've, if I wanted to reach my career goals, which was always my main, main focus, that I had to straighten up. And I think I got to a point where some of my friends were starting to actually get jobs, get, get great jobs and really kind of move forward in our comedy careers. And I thought, oh, shit, I need to, you know, get on this bus or I'm going to be left behind because you see that all the time in comedy. You know, you see really great comedians who just never quite step up. And I thought, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to be that one. <laughs> I'm not going to be that one from our gang. So, yeah, I kind of recommitted to work. That's a lot of self-will, yeah. though, isn't it? Yeah. But, yeah, you have to have that, I think, if, if you want to succeed in show business, you know, because there are a lot of people who want it, want every job and who want every opportunity. I don't know anyone who's ever done it by accident. I know a lot of people who like to make out. They have, who like to make out that they just, I don't know, I just, you know, I was just walking past a microphone and, I don't know, I said something and, I don't know, some people saw it and offered me all these great jobs. Bullshit. You have to work so hard and you have to be everywhere all at once and that's the only way I know to get anywhere in this industry. So, yeah, I had to recommit. I did take a little break to work in brothels as a receptionist and there was a moment where a friend of mine who ran a really prestigious comedy venue rang me up after a couple of months and said, what are you doing? Come come and do a gig, come and do a gig. And that was sort of a moment where I thought, yeah, what am I doing? Am I running brothels now for the rest of my life? Is this who I am? Even though I loved it, it was, it was really fun. That sort of did kick me out of this crazy funk. And I was taking drugs then because I was so tired. You know, I was working like seven at night until six in the morning and I was slipping into a really unhealthy lifestyle and thought, okay, is this who I want to be? I don't think this is why I came to Melbourne. And you say that it was because of trauma, Mm. which is often what people will do with mental illness. You'll self-medicate, whether it be drinking or drugs. Is there something that you could say was that trauma or was it a series of things that happened? It was being bullied by my father. Yes, definitely a bad patch that we went through, my teens, that, uh, yeah, I'd say it would be that. And that's really difficult to, to go through, to live with when a parent really turns on you and when you're afraid of them. And, um, yeah, there's, there's just a lot that goes along with that. And, you know, being bullied in your own home and by, you know, because we had a good relationship when I was really small. So having that flip, yeah, it was just devastating. It was very, very traumatic. And having other people in the family kind of just not mention it, not, you know, it was very... Not stand up for you. No, not at all. And it was very isolating. And then just to leave it and have no one ever mention it again and... 
I was very, very isolated and left alone to just kind of figure it out, deal with it. And of course, I just tried to ignore it, just go, great, thank God I'm out of there and get on with life. But, you know, it doesn't work that way. It's still there. It's still all those feelings of hurt and confusion and... And resentment. Yes. And am I really that person? Am I really that bad? Am I really, you know, was that all my fault? Did I? Uh, Yeah, it's just a lot. And it doesn't go away until you do something with it. But I didn't know any of that. So I just thought I would just work really hard and... I'll push it away. Sometimes it's sort of that idea of put your focus on, I'll do this, I'll just keep putting that in the back of the cupboard and I'm not going to look at it. No, and I'll build a great life for myself and be happy. You know? Yeah. So it just seemed to make sense to me to do that and move physically a long way away. And, yeah, uh, it worked for a while in, in one way or another. But, yeah, it comes back. But now, though, you have built this incredible life for yourself and your family. Mm -hmm. You don't have to answer to anyone. You've created this extraordinary podcasting empire Mm -hmm. and industry. Yeah, but because I was very lucky in that, like, I learnt from a lot of great people in television and radio, you know, it's not because I was born a podcasting genius. It's because I work with great people who taught me a lot. They just taught me how to do it, you know, for a long time. And I just said to my brother the other day, actually, I can't remember what exactly we were talking about. I said, oh, I'm lucky I'm on the cusp of something, whatever it was. Um, and, and I said, do you know what? I've always been on the cusp. I feel like I was, I've just happened to be in this great spot when podcasting started, you know, and I was working at a radio station and they allowed me to make it at the station after my shift. And everyone there chipped in and taught me how to do things, taught me how to edit, taught me how to use the gear. And I'm really just the sum of those parts, you know, of all the experience that other people poured into me. Plus determination. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, definitely. And And hard work. And workaholic part (laughs) of you that's like, no, how can I make this happen? Yeah. Yeah. And the love of it. I never meant for it to be a business. It was a hobby. I liked doing it. I liked learning how to do things to edit myself and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's been fun. And don't you think also it's so freeing to be your own boss? Oh yeah. To not have anyone kind of saying, you can't say that. Yeah. Don't do that. Well, particularly in radio, because my experience was, I was, again, lucky. I had a lot of autonomy. But there were always times when you'd go, seriously, trust me, this will be great. They will love it. Or I'd be in a room with four men, middle-aged men, telling me, a 35-year-old woman, what 35-year-old women want to hear, right? And I'd be like, are you joking? Like, (laughs) hello, I'm here. Seriously, (laughs) come on. Um, You know, so it's so great to be, this is just relies completely on me, my instincts, my judgment, and it's working. And that is incredibly gratifying. Yeah, that's a really, really great feeling. And no one can claim that it's the music or the billboards or the promotions or the co-host or anything else. This is just me. And that is a really great feeling, yeah. But I miss the team, you know, having that gang around. I do miss that. I do miss kicking things around, yeah. And also with you too, you don't seem to be fearful of saying things 
or doing things? No, I'm not a fearful person. And why not? Well, as I say, I'm not a fearful person in general. My kids will tell you that. I'm not scared of much. And again, I came up through radio and through stand-up and through everything at a time when we were allowed to say everything, where where everybody said everything, and uh, that was exciting. And this kind of period of conservatism that we're going through now is initially I was scared of it. I Like everyone else, I kind of went through that period of being cancelled on Twitter and all that stuff and it did scare me for a couple of years. But then I just decided no. I just made a decision. No, I guess it didn't kill me. I just thought, okay, so now what? Now you, okay, you've cancelled me. You've said I'm racist. You've said I'm homophobic. You've said I'm transphobic. You've said all these things which clearly aren't true, and what's happened? Well, it didn't kill me. None of my listeners obviously believe it because they know me and everything's actually fine. So I'm just going to keep doing what I do and it's clearly I'm not the enemy, clearly, because, you know, I, as I thought at the time, I was, I was protesting racism and homophobia in the streets before most of these people were born. Yeah, what are you going to do about it? I mean, I admire that enormously. I'm not as brave as you in that way. Even though I say I don't care what people think, I still do. There's a part of me that goes, oh. I think when you have been berated by a parent, when you've had to live through hearing what someone like that thinks of you and it's really not much... And when you have come out the other side of that, when you've learned to to live with that, I don't think there's much else that can get to you. I don't think anyone else's opinion, with the possible exception of my children, but they have yet to to try, try that with me. But um, yeah, I don't think anyone else's opinion can ever hurt me after that, to be honest. Certainly not a stranger on social media. And did it take a long time to get to that realisation, to get to that, actually, no, it doesn't matter. Yeah, definitely did. I mean, when I was on television regularly, that was really hard. I think what was hardest about that, though, was it felt unjust because most of the time it was things that I hadn't wanted to say or written or whatever. It was like, I'm just doing a job, man. Like, I'm just asking a question on a piece of paper. Like, I don't care. care." You know, like, I'm just sitting here doing a job and then I'd get two weeks of abuse. And the other thing was it started to creep into the real world where people were approaching me in the street. That's scary. It was scary. And fortunately, I was always able to talk them down and to explain to them how it worked, which is time-consuming sometimes. I'm just standing there explaining to them, okay, here's how it works. We get there, we have a meeting, they have questions written, they assign us the questions. I just had to ask that question for the interview and it's not really... The worst part of it was that the production never called to say, how are you going? And they knew about it because then you'd go in for the meeting and they'd go, oh, geez, you're copping a bit of shit, aren't you? And I'd be like, yeah, it's really... It's hard. hard. It's really hard. It's exhausting and it's all those things. So that got to me. For a couple of years, I just thought, I don't want to go back into anything. I don't want to be visible. I don't want to broadcast anymore. 
but yeah, having come out of that and now feeling like, no, 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 I can, I can broadcast as long as I'm in control of it and saying what I want to say and I can own, you know, own whatever I'm saying. And, if, and I'll make mistakes. When you talk for a living, you make mistakes and I'll make mistakes and, and I'll apologise for them. And that's okay. Well, I'm a human being, you know? We're living, we're learning. It's okay. We can't hang each other every time we do something wrong. And certainly not for things we did in the past, I don't think, when we didn't understand things, when we, yeah, I don't think. Do you? No, I don't. And I think it's important that we can apologise or can recognise when, oh, I didn't get that quite right or I got that wrong. Because we're human beings. Yeah. We're not robots. Who wants to be a robot? You're a Buddhist. Yes. How then does your Buddhist faith sort of sit with then saying things as you say them? Buddhists, this is very Buddhist. And this is funny, like particularly Tibetan Buddhist. Tibetan, people have said to me all the time online, you know, nice Buddhism, mate. Great. Well done. How's your Buddhism going? Don't know Tibetans. Tibetans are incredibly down to earth. They are incredibly tough people. They are not meek. They are not even particularly gentle, to be honest. They are tough little units. And they, I mean, they Tibet is a tough joint. And one of my favourite monks always teases me because I've only got two children. He thinks I'm so soft because I'm always complaining about how busy I am. He's like, my mother had 12 children and a farm. You know, he's like 90 and he just thinks they tease like Australians do. Their sense of humour is very teasing, very cutting teasing. And they're tough. The Dalai Lama has been trying to avoid China murdering him since he was 17. He is not soft. So it's actually very Buddhist. Can we be real? Can we just be real? You know, I remember going to a monk years ago because I had to have a dog put down because he was vicious. And I'd adopted him from a shelter, you know, and I tried everything. He was never vicious with us, but he was biting the neighbours. It was awful. And the monk said to me, oh, basically grow up. Like, what do you reckon? I, I don't kill mice if they're in the roof. And I was like, oh, my God, are you serious? You can't, you can't kill anything. He goes, of course, you know, I can't have a mouse plague. Be sensible. That's Buddhism. That's certainly Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah, we're not meant to be as soft as everyone thinks we are. Everyone thinks we're meant to sit around meditating and letting everyone kick us in the face. No. But what about kindness? Yeah, sure, be kind, but doesn't mean I'll kindly let you kick me in the face. Or I'll kindly let you kick my kid in the face. Or I'll kindly let you pretend you're being kind when I know you're an asshole. That ain't Buddhism. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and you've written books about it. You've written some amazing books about it. Would you say you're comfortable in your skin now? Yes. 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 Yeah, definitely. Yes. And isn't that nice? It is nice. Yeah, And that's funny. empowering. Like, I love... I'll be 53 soon and I love it. I, I just love turned getting 50. The, ah, yeah. And it's the, the best is yet to come oh, in terms good. of 50s are the best. I'm the happiest I've been. I've been reading that actually for like a decade. I've been reading women saying, oh, yeah, 50s are great. How wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you look you look great. You look happy. I and am happy. Well. well, the Botox is helping. Okay, well, obviously. <laughs> yes, same. <laughs> and one thing as well, we've spoken about how open you are. Mm. You're also open about your gastric band surgery. Yes. Yeah, which yeah. I applaud you for. Thank you. Because too often 
especially women in the spotlight, will kind of not fess up to things that they do. Yeah. And, and that's something that really annoys me. Yeah, well, that one in particular, I just think when you are really overweight and or probably even not really, really overweight, but when you can't lose weight, it's so, and I would imagine it's the same when you can't gain weight, it's so demoralising, frustrating when you're seeing other people do it and you're trying everything and it's not working. To see somebody who's incredibly successful, like loses a ton of weight and they won't say how they did it or they've got some bullshit answer about what, how they did it. Oh, I just stopped eating peaches and... Green drink. Oh, my God. <laughs> and started taking the stairs. You're like, oh, what a liar. It's incredibly f- frustrating and I think it's mean. I think it's mean because I know the shame again, the shame of not being able to lose weight, the embarrassment of it. I remember Courtney Courtney Love once said a million years ago that she lost weight by (laughs) giving up cheese, right? And I was just (laughs) like, you bitch, like of all the people, because I love Courtney and she was such a sister, you know, she's a riot girl. And I'm like, Courtney, that's so rotten to make the rest of us feel like, oh, all you've got to do is stop eating cheese. Well, well, that's worked for me. I don't know what's wrong with you. If that doesn't work for you, you must be a freak because, you know, it's such a horrible feeling. I couldn't lie. I could not lie about it. Yes, I'm embarrassed. Yes, it's embarrassing to say to people I had to have surgery. That's the only way I could lose weight. It's less so now. But yeah, it was embarrassing. But I could not, I couldn't lie. No, good on you. Good on you. Oh my gosh. There's so many women still contact me and go, how did you do it? I go, mate, gastric bypass, that's how. It's no secret. It's not a magic trick. Now, finally, how do you switch off? Because you're busy, you're on the go, but you're a bit of a painter, aren't you? I am. Yes, I do love to paint. And I'm painting a Freddie Mercury mural on our lounge room wall as we speak. It looks amazing. I've seen some pics on Insta. And it's like really rock star. It's beautiful. I do love it. He's the man of our house, him and Jacko, the dog. Yeah, I do love that. And also, you know what I've rediscovered? Like the Lifestyle Channel and Nine Life at night time. I've just gone crazy for them again. <laughs> like I'd forgotten about them. So I'm watching like, you know, selling houses. Oh, I love that yeah, too. Yeah. I mean, and like, do we sell it oh, or do we do it up and yes. stay here and that whole... I haven't watched them in ages. So yeah, at night time, cup of tea, bit of painting because the kids now are really, they're doing their homework because they're in high school and then oftentimes they're on the phone to friends. Like this is a whole new thing. They used to be, you know, wanting to sit with me, watch TV with me. So suddenly I've got nights to myself. It has been an absolute ride to talk with you. (laughs) Thank you. You're so kind. I've never had so many compliments in such a short period of time in my life. But thank you for being so open because I think you are fascinating. You are. You're doing it again. No, but you are. You're fascinating because you're complex, you're open, and you sit in your power. That is something to behold. So thank you. Really? Thank you. It is. Thank you. Thank you. Also, Michelle and I, we share our love of pussycats and crap telly. And isn't she fascinating to listen to? She is so accomplished and talented, but like so many of us, she doesn't accept a compliment. Sometimes it's hard, isn't it, for us to hear it when people say, you are good, you are enough. Now, do not miss Michelle's podcast, 
Can We Be Real? It features hilarious yarns, tough topics, taboo truths, and your deepest, darkest secrets. And it's available wherever you get your podcasts. And for more big conversations like this, follow the Jessro Big Talk Show podcast. It means you will never, ever miss an episode. And if there's someone in your life who you think will love this chat, go on, do them a favour, share it with them. And if you love this episode with Michelle, I reckon you will really love my chat with Julia Morris. On looking inside and working out why, why do I need that validation? Why do I not believe that what I've got to give is enough? And I wonder if that's going to be a lifetime of work. You know, why do I need that person to think I'm smart? Why do I need that person to think I'm thin? Why do I need that person to think I'm funny? Like, yeah, so that's, uh, that is definitely a work in progress. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show is hosted by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. She's a wonderful leopard lady. Audio imager, Nat Marshall. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter.